Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 420 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, Adriana Hunter speaks with Anne Morgan about writing other people's books, how sex scenes change between languages, the art of word games, and the novels that never get to speak English. Adriana Hunter is an award-winning translator from French with around a hundred titles to her name. Her work includes international bestsellers and prize winners such as Hervé Letellier, and in 2017 she took on the mantle of translating the Asterix comics from the legendary Anthea Bell. When I visited her at her home in Kent, I started by asking her where it all began. It all started with a particular book that I fell in love with. I was working as an interpreter for someone in Paris and I was just waiting for them to come down and leafing through a French magazine and I read a review of this book, The Disappearance by Geneviève Jürgensen and I thought, oh, I'd better buy that, it sounds amazing. And when I did buy it, I was completely blown away by it and I just thought, more people need to read this and I want to be the vehicle. So I translated a little chunk of it and sent it round to lots of publishing companies got lots of rejections, and eventually Philip Gwynne-Jones at Flamingo Books, which was part of HarperCollins, picked it up and commissioned me to translate the whole book. And I then went on to do another book for him, and it sort of went from there. Not many English speakers would have the skills to be able to translate a French novel. How was your your language so strong as to be able to do that? Uh, That's an interesting question, because it was actually Philip at, at Flamingo who... This was something very flattering that he said to me very early on in my career when I was actually in slight competition with someone for a book. He said, you're not just a translator, you're a writer with access to a language. And I think the language skill of the two aspects of the job, the language skills are possibly the less important. You have to be able to write because everybody can help explain what the original author is saying. You can look it up or you can contact them or you can, I can go running to, to a French friend and say, what's going on here? But if you can't write, it doesn't matter how well you understand what's happening in the original language. You won't be able to put it in a sort of palatable way onto the page in English. Yeah. Uh, but the language skills did come from the fact that my father was military and he was posted to Switzerland for four years when I was little. And my brothers and I all went to a French school in Switzerland. And I'm very lucky, just the right age and stage, because neither of my brothers really kept it going. But I ended up doing French at university and working abroad. Wow. That's so interesting, talking about the the writing and it being a sort of rewriting of the story, because translation is one of those concepts that you hear so many metaphors used to describe. I mean, everything from sort of mathematical equations to alchemy to the babel fish, even Mireille Gansel calling it the transhumance, moving of pasture, sheep from one pasture to another. In my book, Reading the World, I, I came to the conclusion that reading a translation was a bit like reading with someone else's eyes. How do you think of it? What are you doing? Oh, I, I have lots of metaphors as well. I often compare it to music, to playing something, but you've got to put your own interpretation on there in order to make it work. 
But I also remember once, in fact, with that very first book, The Disappearance, which was a deeply personal book about a woman who'd lost two children, she reads English. So I sent her my translation and she wrote me this beautiful email back saying, you know, oh, your work is so beautiful. You've made such a beautiful book. And I said, well, it's your book. And I said, it's as if you were looking at a really stunning white rose, a perfectly beautiful white rose through a red filter and you then got a perfectly beautiful pink rose. Mm. It's still her rose. I've just put my filter on it. Yes, there are endless different definitions for it. Yeah. And it is, uh, that really fascinated me, what you said about the writing, because I, I remember attending a translation duel once, and I won't name the two translators, but it was using the windmill scene from Don Quixote. And what was fascinating was that there, there was a minor discrepancy between the two translations in that one translator had put the windmills in the same field, if I remember correctly, and the other had put them in the next field. And actually there was nothing in the Spanish to say conclusively one way or the other which it was. And what became clear was they had both imagined the scene and then described what they saw rather than... Is that how you... you often... that's, yes, you can't help bringing something of yourself to the table. You just can't help it. We all do it. We all do it when we're reading books. So why wouldn't I do it when I'm translating a book? Mm-hmm. If it was a little bit vague in the mm-hmm. Spanish, you know, they might might not need to specify, then each of those translators would have had a mental picture of it. And without even realising they were doing it, they would write down their mental picture. In the same way as in lots of languages, possessive pronouns, the gender of a possessive pronoun is dictated by the gender of the thing you're talking about. Well, in English, you know, tables and chairs don't have genders. So it's my table, her table, his table, her chair. And I always make a bit of a joke about this. You know, in French, when you're translating a sex scene, it can get very confusing about whose hand is on whose thigh because thigh is feminine and hand is feminine, but that doesn't tell you whether it's a woman's hand or a man's hand. So there are lots of things where, in that sort of similar example to the Don Quixote example, where two people translating the same scene about a couple might make different assumptions about whose hand is going exactly where. Would that confusion be the same for someone who didn't speak an ungendered language like English? For a French speaker, would that same level of confusion exist? For the French-speaking English, they suddenly see new clarity because you say he got into his car Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. instead of... If you say, if you know, if the man went outside and there were two cars, one was his and one was hers, in French you have to add on extra words to say which one it was, uh-huh. sa voiture à lui or sa voiture à elle. But in English they would suddenly discover this incredible clarity. Go, oh my goodness, I knew straight away whose car it was. Yeah, how interesting. <laughs> I, I discovered this with Google Translate uh, is male biased in that when it's dealing with gendered languages or uh, languages that have neutral, neuters, um, it makes them all male in English. That's um, interesting. So I had yes. a, a message sent to me by a Romanian and I, I plugged it into Google Translate to try and get the gist. And I had this nonsensical thing with a pair of trousers and a Romanian friend helped me out and told me that actually it was about... It was the Romanian phrase equivalent to put your feet up or put your legs up. But um, the thing that put his, put his trousers his, up. Put his trousers um, up. Oh dear, what was he doing with his trousers down? Exactly, it's, apparently the whole thing, certainly in those days, I don't know if it still is, it was, you know, that was its default. Yes. Um, to impose a sort of male slant on everything. So, yeah, fascinating. So, 
your process when you get a book that you're going to translate how do you do that what with how many drafts do you do do you read the whole thing through, through first how does that Oh, okay. So there are lots of different ways of doing this. And I'm almost sheepish about the way I do it because it feels a bit labour not intensive compared to some other people. So I don't always read the whole book first. And that that's a deliberate choice I make. If it's a very, very finely crafted book or it's very sophisticated language or, you know, if, if it's difficult... I will read it first because I think that's important. I owe it to the book to do that. If it's lighter material, uh, if it's a more sort of commercial work, I actually deliberately don't read it, partly to keep sort of interested, but also so that there's a sort of freshness to my work that I'm not saying that it's stale in the other iterations, but so that I'm discovering it as I go along. And it's got that immediacy of a book that hasn't been you know, every sentence isn't finely crafted. It doesn't need to be. It's got to have that immediacy. So that's a deliberate choice with some books not to read them in advance. And then the actual process is I start at the beginning and I end at the end and I'm not allowed to stop in the middle. And I I have to find a translation for everything, even if I know I'm going to question the, you know, ask the author questions. I have to get everything down on paper. And I'm not allowed to have options in my first draft. I know a lot of people do a really, really rough first draft where they have, you know, it was a wet date, no, slash muggy, slash rainy, slash... No, no, you've got to make up your mind. It's a rainy day. I will commit it all down. And I work in little chunks of up to about an hour and a half at a time. After that, the brain starts going. It's just too many micro decisions going on. So after about an hour and a half, that's that's enough. And I'll go away and, I don't know, hang the washing out or walk the dogs or something. I'll come back, read through what I've just written. And then sort of in, in that momentum of reading it through, I'll then carry on to the next section. And that's the first draft, which I then park and forget about for a month. And then I print it out so that it feels more bookish. I don't like to read it on the screen. I print the whole thing out and make my corrections. And then that's it. It goes off. So there's really one draft that gets corrected. Mm-hmm. And do you often work with the, with the author? I'll almost always have some sort of discussion with them. I mean, I like to anyway. And it's quite nice. It shows a sort of respect for the book, not to just think, oh, bish, bosh, bash, translated your book. And even if I don't need to ask them any questions, I might send them the, the translation when it's when my version that's finished at the same time as it goes to the editors. It's quite nice to send it to the author and say, I've really enjoyed working on your book. But sometimes there are little questions that I need to ask. One of the books that you translated that I particularly enjoyed reading was Hervé Letelier's The Anomaly, massive international hit bestseller prize winner and a real feat of a book I mean an incredibly complex idea of this this storm in which a plane somehow lands twice and causes this national emergency an international crisis. So I think it's the fifth book of Latelli's that I've translated and he's a very very intelligent man and very playful and that comes across in this book it's massively commercial but at the same time very sophisticated and little jokes and word games and things all the way along. So it certainly kept me interested. There wasn't a moment when I thought, oh, God, I can't wait to get to the end of this chapter. <laughs> yeah, I mean, something that fascinates me, and a, a distinction I often see between the French and the English markets, is that in France, and I'm sure there are exceptions to this, but 
broadly speaking, it's entirely possible for something to be a massive commercial success and a prize winner. There are writers like L'Atelier, uh, Leila Slimani, but also more historically Georges Simenon, who are massively popular, uh, but also win the, the highest honours. In the English market, there's this kind of snobbish distinction between commercial and literary, and there the twain shall meet. Yes. Is that a problem for French books coming through? Because L'Atelier's book is a very literary novel, but it's also clearly got huge commercial potential, and does that cause problems? Yes, I think it does. I think it causes a certain amount of bewilderment mm. with authors, you know, French authors who may be extremely successful and they've won prizes and their foreign rights people cannot secure an English language rights contract because there's this sort of different appetite. I have translated some very, very commercial books, a real sort of beach read, fun, rompy books. When they first started coming through, I'd get these contracts, and I think, what is this? This isn't the sort of book that people people translate. But I think the publishers are quite canny, and they've realised that it's just it's good material, it's fun, it's relatively cheap to get something translated. Boom, boom, boom! You've got a you've got a fun book. But there is that strange thing of, in English: a book is either literary and prize winning, or very commercial, and it, it is it is difficult for people to understand that. There isn't that crossover that can happen in other countries. In terms of the titles, do you have much... Because often titles change between languages, don't they? Do you have much input into that? Yes, very Mm. much so. And sometimes publishers will make assumptions about, you know, that the title will be translated very very literally. And I'll say, it's just just not really working in English, or it's not doing the same in English as it did Mm. in the original language. I mean, some of them, like The Anomaly... It's pretty straightforward, it's the anomaly. But others, you have to come up with something completely different because there may be a pun in the title or there may be a cultural reference that simply doesn't work in English. Or it may be too sort of long and gangling. Or So that's quite fun. That's quite a fun aspect of the job. Right at the beginning, when you first start work on it, they say, well, we're putting together our catalogue for next spring, so if you could tell us what you want the title to be. And I sort of think, no, no, I, I want to get immersed in the whole... <laughs> 400 pages of this before I can tell you what the title is going to Gosh, be. Gosh, it's so interesting because my experience as a writer is that you have relatively little control over titles. I'm always consulted and involved, but there is certainly a, a sense of the publisher does have quite a say. And but it sounds as though your experience is that as the translator, you have a degree more. Yeah, I think it's because I'm seeing the book possibly before the person who's going to be editing it and the person who's the commissioning editor who's in charge of it may not have access to the original they haven't actually seen it so they're having to trust me they're trusting readers reports to tell them whether or not it's worth doing and they're having to trust me about the content of the material to decide what the title ought to be mm. and the reason that they want to do it so far in advance is because of their you know they're putting together their catalogues once they've seen the book or if they read French and they've got access to the original, then they do have a complete power of veto. And my, my little, oh, I think it should be this. No, no, I'm not interested in that. <laughs> uh, so it all depends on timing then. Yes, I think so, yes. Now, in, in 2017, you, you had very big shoes to fill in that you became the new Asterix translator following in the steps of Anthea Bell. What was it like taking over such a, a huge... <laughs> A huge gig. Really, really scary. <laughs> it was really scary, actually. And my initial reaction was, I can't do this. I, why me? I, I can't do this. And then they 
asked me, I was approached, it's not something I sort of put a bid in for, I was, I was approached when unfortunately Anthea was very ill at the time and they weren't sure whether she would be able to recover and, and sadly she didn't. And they asked me to sort of put together, a, you know, why, why should it be you? And I thought, well, wait, yeah, yes, why should it? And then I thought about it and I thought, this is, this is absurd. You know exactly why it should be you. And I absolutely love word games and puns and crosswords. And funnily enough, when I looked back through my career, I thought, I've never done anything like this. I've never done graphic things before. But I looked back through and I said, no, you haven't done anything graphic, but you've done an awful lot of books that played with words. The thing that frightened me more than anything else wasn't the word games, because that's huge fun. It was actually the cultural references, because I thought, I'm just going to miss stuff. You know, I can't be inside every French person's mind of what their cultural experience is. So I won't pick up on these references. When the first one arrived through an awful system of military grade security that the documents go through and they finally arrived in my inbox after I clicked on all these passwords and things there's a crib sheet there's a crib sheet because they are being translated I mean they go into I don't know how many languages but the initial launch it comes out in about 17 languages simultaneously And there are more later, but in the initial launch, there are about 17. It's a very intensive period. It's a sort of two or three weeks when everybody suddenly gets it and it needs to be delivered. The authors don't want to spend those two weeks answering questions. So they flag up everything. This is a word game. This is a reference to a very famous speech by Giscard d'Estaing. This is a reference to a rapping song by I don't know who. So all those references that I was so scared I was going to miss... I needn't have worried. And of course, I had Anthea's wonderful work to fall back on. I could look back through back copies. She'd named so many of the characters with her brilliant names. So I had all that there as a sort of not only material that I obviously reuse characters that she's named. I use their same names, but as a sort of how to. And she injected a lot into them. And I've continued to do that. There are more jokes in the English language versions. The last one I translated, there were characters who were Amazons, as in, you know, the mounted horsewomen Amazons. But there was so much scope for making jokes about Amazon and, you know, deliveries and packages and and notifications and, oh, taking us all around the houses. And I just went on and on and on. And it was just, I couldn't help myself that every time a silly joke presented itself, I thought, well, you know, I'll go with that, (laughs) I know some translators sometimes think in terms of if it's not possible always to bring a joke through directly, you think, well, I'll hold that in hand and, and create a joke later that feels roughly similar. Do, do you ever work in that Absolutely. way? Absolutely. It's like a sort of audit. And funnily enough, the edit of the Asterix albums is called an audit. <laughs> and I think of it as a sort of numerical joke for joke. You know, has she has she managed to match this joke? But I do think of it like that. If If there's something that I really can't recreate. You might be able to change the meaning of the sentence in order to make a word game work. But if the meaning is really important, you've got to give your reader that same laugh at some stage. So yes, I'll, I'll find somewhere else to put it in. An audit of jokes. That's a nice, <laughs> nice idea. Um, you mentioned you've worked on a number of Letelier's books, but also you've worked on uh, several other authors of several of their books, um, Camille Laurent, um, Agne Desart. Working on the, uh, the same author's work on a number of books, 
Is that easier? Do you feel, do you click into, or are other voices so different, Jess? That's a really good question. And no, that, well, yes, it's lovely working with the same author more than once. It's nice because you can sort of build up a, a relationship. But each book is different. Each book has its own mood and voice. Some authors are more of a pleasure. They're easier to translate. It kind of comes more just because of the way they structure their sentences. It's easier. A bit like meeting four children from the same family yes they've got family traits but my goodness they're all their own person yes don't mix them up <laughs> yes, <laughs> well, don't get it wrong <laughs> um, and now in the last particularly last 10 years I think there's been a real shift in terms of the recognition that translators receive we see a number of the literary prizes now are shared between authors and translators and um, more recently the hashtag name the translator campaign has had a, a great deal of attention and, and calls them from some very prominent voices to give translators the same recognition as authors on the cover of books. How do you feel about the issue? What, what do you... That's an interesting one. And, and I mean, now that the movement has really got a big head of steam mm. and I completely agree with the sentiments of it. And now that it's sort of more out in the, uh, in the open, I'm very supportive. When people first started jumping up and down about this and I was relatively new in the industry I was painfully aware of the fact that in this country there's still a certain resistance to material in translation and my feeling was so long as everybody in the industry knows who I am I don't really care if my name's not very visible on the book because I wouldn't want the fact that it's a translation to make people go, oh, I don't want to read that. It used to be French. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want them to flick through it. I mean, people don't flick through things in bookshops so much nowadays, but, you know, flick through it in a bookshop. Oh, read the back and think, oh, this sounds really interesting. Open it up and go, oh, it's translated. I don't want to read that. So in the same way that the editor, who does a huge amount of work on a book, their name doesn't, you don't know who edited a book. But having said that, it is very nice that it's now a recognised thing. And I also think that translation has really upped its game. Translations used to be much more word for word, much more literal, much more wooden. And you'd get these extraordinary convoluted sentences trying to battle with the syntax of the original in English, which just doesn't work. You just can't do it like that. And I think people now have understood they've given themselves the freedom to write proper English sentences that convey the meaning of the original. Mm. So there is a degree more artistry, perhaps, to, to it? Or... Yes, or people are being allowed to use that artistry and readers are, are enjoying it the more for that because mm. they're reading a work which, to all intents and purposes, is English. Mm. I still think there's room for even more parking the original syntax and parking the ways things are said in different languages in order to produce a work which somebody who didn't know it was a translation wouldn't guess it was a translation. Mm. I mean, it sort of makes me think of, of some of those experiments that have been done. There, there was that book around 10 years ago, um, Multiples, with the story that was um, translated between different languages um, by people with varying degrees of, of competence. Yes. And the most extreme example was Sion, the, the Icelandic author, who because the authors were given the, the licence to do it however they wanted. So he got his 14-year-old son to read the story and then tell it to him. And then two weeks later, he sat down. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it makes you... I mean, obviously, there's a great deal of scope for artistry there. But yes. whether that, whether actually what we're talking about here is, is a greater lag between the original and the... 
and the new version to allow for a degree more creativity. Yes, and, and I mean it's interesting because of course different people take different liberties with mm -hmm. translation. Some people will stick more slavishly to the original. I would contend that if you stick too closely to the original, you are drifting away from it because you're not being true to the spirit of it by being so true to the letter of it. I mean, it makes you think how far, if you think of, say, Shakespeare's plays and he's taken some ancient stories and reimagined them and retold them, how close is that to translation? Is it, It's almost a sliding scale as opposed to a sort of... And I, I mean, I tend to think about translation in these terms anyway, that yes. rather than a binary, it's translated or it's not. We're always moving between registers and moving between, you know, different sorts of languages, even within mm. one language. And so it's less of a clear-cut, something always translated or it's not. There can be degrees, I think. Yes. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's fascinating to think, well, how far... Can you push that? How far is too far? <laughs> yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Do you write your own material alongside your translations? Um, not really. I mean, I've, I've sort of dabbled. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Ages ago, there was a ghastly first novel, which luckily has sort of been swept under a carpet somewhere. There is the beginnings of a second novel, but I've slightly dissociated from it. I'm so busy translating other people's wonderful books. I'm so busy writing other people's books. And I'm not convinced that everybody wants to read the story I've got to tell. So I'm okay with the fact that at the moment it's parked. Mm -hmm. And I love my translating. I'm always keen to know what we're missing in English. That's what I'm fascinated by. Are there any things out there that you would love to see come through, but for whatever reason haven't, or that we're, we're missing in the English language? Market? Yes, it, it happens <laughs> all the time. Every now and again, something comes along that I absolutely love, and somebody else gets the job, and then oh my goodness, it's like it is. It is like being that person in the church going, "It should have been me <laughs> at the wedding." But you you see this book, and the deal is struck, and the translator is hired, and you think, "Well, that's, I'll never get to do that book. I'll never get to hold that one in my arms." So that's very sad. But there are also the books that, that get forgotten, the books that are overlooked. In France, they have two really big times of year when they publish new work. It's not like a sort of drip feed thing that we have in this country. It's September and January. It used to be just September was a huge thing. All the new books came out in September. And now they've tried to sort of spread the love a bit and it happens in September and January. Well, last September, it's called the Rentrée Littéraire. And it was a slightly disappointing rentrée, I, I think. But there were two books that I really, really enjoyed. And so far, nobody has bought the rights for them. And I'm sort of jumping up and down, so, and, you know, for, for free, for, just for the love of them. I've translated sample material from them and sort of thrown them in various directions to various publishers. And nobody wants them. Oh. It might be, you know, there's this thing, oh, it's too French or it's not for now. But it's frustrating because both the, the books I'm thinking of are a, a hugely original narrative voices. One is a traditional sort of love triangle, but it's presented in such a humorous, dry, new way. And the other one is very unusual. It manages to be a whodunit, but also very poetic at the same time. And, you know, so they, they, they've got a lot going for them and they're different and fun. And it's just frustrating I've got some on my shelves, the ones that have fallen by the wayside that never got to speak English. Mm. Oh. <laughs> Looking up at your shelves now in a wistful manner. <laughs> and what would your advice be to someone keen to get into translating in some way? What would you suggest? 
do a huge amount of reading, which is, you know, any writer, that's what you need to do is read a lot. Do a lot of translating, even if you're doing it for free, even if you're doing it for yourself, you're not doing it for anyone, but enter competitions and offer things to magazines. The problem is it is now really, really difficult to do what I did when I first started out, to just send stuff round to commissioning editors, because there are real gatekeepers now. It's really difficult to get hold of people's email addresses, and even if you do email them, you just don't hear back. There are courses that you can go on. The British Centre for Literary Translation runs a summer school, and there are there. I mean, there are similar summer schools. There's one in Bristol, I think, there, and there's one in the city of London. They're, they're all over the place. There are panels and and groups and. There are ways of getting a toehold. Even if you don't end up making contact with any sort of publisher, you will at least be moving in the same circles as other people aspiring to be literary translators. And there's a lot of support, you know, support networks between them. Is it worth it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think so, because I really, really love my work. I really love my work. It doesn't pay terribly well. But it pays even worse if you're very slow at it. And when you get to my sort of age and stage, there's a lot of problem solving in translation. But the more you do it, the more you know how to solve that problem. You think, I've done this before. I've, I've, I've had exactly this same problem before. And it, it's a bit like, I don't know if everybody does cryptic crosswords, but you learn to recognise, oh, this is an anagram. You know, this clue is telling me that this is an anagram. Mm done sorted got so it's just like that you think oh i've come to come across one of these so the more you do the better it pays because you just get quicker at it and it's such a pleasure to be paid to do something you enjoy you know it's a real blessing to enjoy your work that was adriana hunter in conversation with anne morgan you can find out more about adriana on the rlf website And that concludes episode 420, which was recorded and produced by Anne Morgan. Coming up in episode 421, Malachi Talek speaks with Carolyn Sanderson about growing up in Shetland and the role of place in his fiction and non-fiction writing. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.